message for today that was, I thought, you know, a little bit of a topical message for the day, and I thought we'll do that, and then the Lord was like, why don't you go read that passage over there in John? I said, okay, and then I read it, and I was like, oh, I can't preach that other message. I got to go back to the book of John, so um, I, the Lord pulled an audible on Friday and Saturday. I put some thoughts together, so am I okay, sound guys, to start? Yes? So we're in John chapter 14. And uh, if you're there, say amen. Amen. I was a little weak. I was a little weak. (laughs) All right, let's try it again. If you're in John 14, say amen. Amen. All right, it's a little better. I know you're working up the appetite. Um, But there's a a famous uh, duet uh, in the Broadway musical Fiddler on the Roof, one of my my favorites, Fiddler on the Roof. Uh, And it's between these two characters, Tevia and Golda. And Tevia, I know some of you nod in your head, you know, you're thinking if I were a rich man. But uh, Tevia is a poor Jewish milkman in the village of Anatevka. And uh, Golda is his sharp-tongued wife of 25 years. And at one point in this, you know, scene, their, their daughter's getting married, and, and he finally turns to his wife, Golda, and he asks his wife, do you love me? You know, he asks her if... Do you love me? And she retorts like, do I what? You know, just kind of just gets on him a little bit and kind of says back, you know, do I love you? And the song becomes this nice little ballad, this funny but tender uh, examination of Tevia and Golda's love for each other. And they kind of just stop and they just reassess that, do you love me? Yes, I love you. And there's just a little bit of reminder, a little bit of a confirmation that they love each other because they've been going through the motions for so many years that, you know, they just wanted a little bit of a reminder that, yeah, do you love me? Yes, I love you. Now, if you look at John chapter 14, we're in the upper room. Jesus Christ getting ready to say goodbye. He's been with these men for three and a half years. He's been doing everything from eating and sleeping and walking on water with these men. And it's like Jesus Christ challenges his disciples to examine their love for him in the upper room. See verse 15? He says, hey, if you love me, keep my commandments. Then you see down to verse 23? He says, if a man love me, he will keep my words. Then you look at the end of verse 28. He says, if you loved me, you would rejoice It's like to me, Jesus Christ is looking at his disciples and saying, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Now, the apostle John who wrote this gospel, he's the apostle of love. I mean, he's all about love. I mean, in the gospel, he calls himself the disciple whom Jesus loved, right? When you read his epistles, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, he mentions love like 32 times in seven chapters. John is all about love. And in his gospel, John's going to give us four tests to tell if Jesus Christ is really loved by you. Four tests to see if you really love Jesus Christ. So that's the message today. Do you love Jesus Christ? That's it. Simple. And you can stuff your face. But do you love Jesus Christ? We're going to look at these four tests mentions that Jesus gives in the book of John, these four tests, these four ifs to see whether you love Jesus Christ or not. 
And that's going to be between you and him, but do you love him or not? Lord, we love you today for your word, and I pray, Lord, my heart will be right, my mind will be right, my spirit will be right with you, Father, that I could say something that would encourage and provoke a saint. And if someone sits here, Lord, and they don't know if they're saved, they're not sure if Jesus Christ is their Savior, I pray today, Lord, you might beckon them and show them their need, and you might draw them to salvation through your Son. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to ask you to turn to the book of John, chapter 8. John chapter 8, verse 42, is our first test. And these are just what Jesus said. So just listen to what Jesus said, and we'll just unpack them a little bit. And then, like I said, you could stuff your face, get a tryptophan coma, and go home and take a nap. All right? But John chapter 8, first thing to show whether you love Jesus or not. Right? First thing. First, you can't really love Jesus Christ if you're not God's son. If you're not saved the way God said you have to be saved. You say, how do I know that? It's the first mention when Jesus says, if and love. Right there in John 8, 42, he says this to these guys. He says in John 8, 42, Jesus said unto them, if God were your father, ye would love me. You see that? That's the first time in the book of John he puts if and love together. And the first mention of if and love together is Jesus Christ confronting a hostile crowd on why they don't love him. He says, I know why you don't love me. Because you're not a child of God. Because God's not your father. You know what that tells me? That the first condition to loving Jesus Christ is being a part of his family. Are you? Right? If I asked you your last name, you'd say, I'm of the family of Mashanya, or I am of the family of Mohika, or I'm of the family of the Zayas, right? If I asked you if you're in God's family, do you know or not? If you don't know, that probably means you're not in the family, right? You see, there's a natural affection that God puts inside the heart of a child for his family. I may love your family from afar. I may love all these folks here. I know some of you pretty well. I might love you from afar, but it's not the same love as being in the family, right? There's a natural affection that God puts between parents and children, children and parents. And the sad state of affairs is that as we reach the end times, that natural affection is less and less common. Now we have kids hating on their families, hating on their parents, and we got parents that are treating their kids like a hassle and a nuisance and just put them in front of a screen and say, leave me alone, right? There's this loss of natural affection, but God put a natural affection inside of a son for his father, inside of a father for his son. It's a natural affection. It can't be replicated. I might be really good friends with you. I might be really good acquaintances with you, and I might love you in a certain degree, but it's not the same love that I have for my family. It's not the same love you have for your family. Because when you're in the family, you naturally love the people and the things that are of your family. I love my wife. I love my sons. I love my daughter. I love them in a different way than I could ever love you. Why? Because they're from me. They're my family. Look what Jesus says in John 8, 42. He says, if God were your father, you would love me. Why? For I proceeded forth and came from God. You see what he's saying? If you're in God's family, you love the things that come from God. 
And if you're in God's family, you'd love me because I came from God. I'm God manifest in the flesh. Don't you see that? Now look at verse 44. 44 is going to make you lose your appetite. I'm just telling you. And I didn't say it. Jesus said it. So Jesus Christ looks at this hostile crowd, this unbelieving crowd, and he makes it very clear there are two spiritual families on the earth. He says, guys, ye are of your father, the devil. Oh, my goodness. You say, Pat, that's so mean. I didn't say it. The Savior said it. He said, ye, all of you guys, are of your father, the devil, and the lust of your father ye will do. He was a murderer from the beginning and abode not in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own, for he is a liar and the father of it. He says very clearly, there's God's family and there's Satan's family. You got that? There's God's family there's the devil's family, and you is in one of those two families. Everybody in this room, I don't care if you're black, white, or polka dots. I don't care if you're Catholic, Methodist, or Baptist. I don't care if you're atheist. I don't care what you are today. Right now, you fall in one of those two camps. No matter what building you walk into worship on a Sunday or don't walk into worship on a Sunday, nothing changes the fact that the Savior of the world said, you're in this family or you're in that family. Which family is you in? Your first birth. You say, how do I get into the devil's family? Guess what? You automatically were born into the devil's family. Because I don't think anybody signs up for the devil's family. <laughs> I don't think he's over at the adoption agency and say, anybody want to come, you know, spend eternity with me in hell and, you know, perish and everything like that? No, the Bible says your first birth puts you in the devil's family. We're all born that way. That's the default position. Say, Pat, you're making me lose my appetite. Don't worry, it's going to get better. Don't worry. I got the stuffing and the gravy behind my, you know, my next point. But you got to realize that you were born lost. You were born separated from God. The Bible says you were by nature a child of disobedience. Separated from God. That's your first birth. How many people here were born? Okay, all right, I'm in the right crowd. If you weren't born, then I'm really going to back away from you because you're freaking me out. But if you were born, right, you were born into the wrong family. Jesus said it. I didn't. That's why Jesus said, ye must be born again. He said it's imperative that you get a second birth because a second birth puts you into God's family. You were born into the devil's family by nature because of the sin passed down from Adam. And then Jesus Christ borns you again and takes you out of the devil's family and adopts you into God's family. I hope you've had the second birth because the second birth is what saves your soul. The second birth is what gives you eternal life. The second birth or born again is not a crazy bunch of people who don't dance, right? Born again is a, in a moment when you receive Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, and at that moment, you are conceived in the family of God, when the seed of God's Word enters into the soil of your heart, and you let it in, that's when conception happens in your heart. You become a child of God. Like physical conception happens in a moment, spiritual conception happens in the moment you believe. And that second birth 
is what gives you eternal life. That second birth, oh, Josh talked so much about it. I'm just re-preaching his message. The second birth gives you eternal life. Jesus said, verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, look at verse 38. Now, these guys were like a lot of religious guys I know. They were wearing, they were rocking the right drip. You know, they had the religious drip on and they just walked around with their phylacteries, spinning their phylacteries and everybody called them fancy names like rabbi and master. And when Jesus said this to them, they got a little bit indignant. They kind of fixed their collars, you know, twisted their prayer shawls around and said, John 8, 38, Jesus says, I speak that which I have seen with my father and you do that which you have seen with your father. The audacity. He's telling them, God's not your father. What? These are the religious kingpins of the day. These are the Pharisees and the Sadducees. These are the guys that were the dudes that everybody was going to to find out what God was supposed to be about. They knew the Bible. They knew the law. They knew it backwards and forwards. And he says, your God's not your father. How would that, how'd you feel if somebody said that to you? 39, they answered and said unto him, Abraham is our father. Jesus saith unto them, if you were Abraham's children, ye would do the works of Abraham. <laughs> they thought they were okay because of their pedigree. They thought they were okay because of their ancestry. They thought they were okay because of that first birth that landed them in this priestly class, this religious class. They thought they were safe because they were who they thought they were. But Jesus says, that's not going to do it. And a lot of you might be sitting here today thinking, I'm okay. I pay my taxes, I live a clean life, I'm not a, a this or a that, I'm not a that or a this. You know, and we, put, we create these scales by which God is going to somehow measure us, and God says, how many births have you had? Because unless you've had the second birth to get you in the family of God, you can't love Jesus Christ. You're outside the family. You're not part of the family. How could you really love what's in the family unless you're related? Now, I'm not saying you hate Jesus. You might see him as a great teacher, and a lot of people do. All oh, the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in heart, you know, blessed are the you know, meek and blessed are the peacemakers and wonderful things, you know, about feeding the poor and helping the lowly. And we might see him as a great teacher, a great miracle worker, a great influencer, you know, he'd probably have like, you know, 10 million followers on TikTok today. You know, he'd be influencing people to love their neighbor and turn the other cheek and all those wonderful things that we like to give Jesus a passing nod for. Like, oh, that was nice, Jesus. You're a nice guy. That's so sweet of you to say that, Jesus. You might think that of him. But unless you're related to Jesus Christ, unless you're in the family through the second birth, you don't really know him and you can't really love him. And I don't make any bones about that. That's what Jesus said. If God were your father, you would love me. The converse is, if God's not your father, you don't really love me. Are you in the family? You know, I read a book many years ago by Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a German Lutheran pastor during the Second World War. He was recruited as part of the plot to assassinate Hitler. And I read the book all about him. You know, by the end of it, I was crying by the end of it because this guy was trying to serve God. I mean, how would you like that if they came up to you and said, hey, you want to help us assassinate Hitler because he's evil and you're supposed to get rid of evil? I mean, what a conundrum, right? What a, what a, what a philosophical conundrum to be in. Like, do I, do I help Hitler? Do I go against Hitler? I'm a pastor. What do I do? And this guy tried to serve God the best he could. And I read this big, thick book about him in like a week. You know, 
what? I came to really respect the man. I came to really admire the man. But I can't really say I love the man. I didn't know him. I wasn't in his family, right? You might hear a lot about Jesus Christ and have esteem for him and respect for him and say, oh, I don't hate him. But are you in his family? Are you in his family? I'm asking you, don't answer out loud. Which family are you in right now? You know what physical family you're in. I said, where were you born? What's your last name? What's your given name? And you had to fill it out on a driver's license application. You don't fill it out. Mashanya, this, that. You know exactly. And you don't know what spiritual family you're in? Your physical family ends when you, hit, when you kick the bucket. Your spiritual family continues forever. And you don't know what spiritual family you're in? That don't sound too smart to me, methinks. <laughs> I think you should listen up today and maybe consider what spiritual family. I didn't say what church you go to. I don't care if you don't. I hope no visitor put anything in that offering basket. Keep it. Stuff your face. Leave here. Never come back. Doesn't change anything about the fact that you got to be in the right family to be saved. And all I can ask for you today is to consider what spiritual family you're in. And if you are in God's spiritual family, I want to ask you this. Are you living like you love Jesus Christ? You're supposed to be related to him. So point number two, go to John 14. Point, 14 was, point one was rough, I know. I came in like a sledgehammer right there. But the truth is, uh, I figure if I'm not making somebody mad, I'm probably not doing a very good job. Because right? preachers always seem to make somebody mad. As much as we try not to, as much as I try to be as friendly, as sweet and sugary as I can, the truth is like a ramrod. The truth is like a, it startles your senses. I mean, you walked in on a Sunday morning, oh, they're having a Thanksgiving fellowship. Let's go. We'll have some stuffing and maybe some carrot cake and pumpkin pie. And this loudmouth Italian gets up here and says, you have your father the devil. That's what Jesus said. Hey, I get it. It's like, whoa, gives me mental agita just thinking about it. But that's what Jesus said. If Jesus said it, I must need to pay attention to it. And it's contrary to the world. The world killed him. They didn't want the message, which means that the way everybody thinks is probably contrary to what God says. So if that rubs your sensibilities the wrong way, it's because you and I have been swimming in the world 24-7, and we need a little bit of truth here to wake us up, to, to shake us out of our lethargy. So here's the second point, and hopefully it'll start climbing uphill now. If you're in the family, say amen if you know you're in the family. One more time like you mean it, if you're in the family. Okay, okay. That means you had the second birth. And if you're in the family, you can't really love Jesus Christ if you're not submitted to God's words. Right? I mean, getting saved just gets you in the door. You know, your child is born and they're sitting there like a blob of flesh just pooping on themselves. Right? They don't know what love is. They're just like... You know, they're just looking up at you. They don't know what love is yet. They come to know you and love you. That's like you being a Christian. You got saved. You said, oh, I'm not going to hell. Hallelujah. I'm saved. I'm not going to hell anymore. I'm going to heaven. Then you start learning about this father you've got. You start hearing what he says. You see, in John chapter 8, what we just looked at, that admonition was to an unbelieving crowd, a lost crowd, a crowd that hated him and wanted to kill him. The next three things in the book of John are all directed in John chapter 14. They're all directed to disciples in the upper room. Are you his disciple? You trying to follow him the best you can? You know, why did he have to give disciples three admonitions for, to see if they loved him? I'm going to let you in on a crazy secret, Christians. 
you're gonna be like, no, this can't be. No, lean in, gonna drop a truth bomb on you. It is possible for believers, blood-washed believers, heaven-bound believers, saved and sealed with the Holy Spirit believers, it is possible for believers to lose their love for Jesus Christ. No, you didn't. Yes, I did. That's, it is possible for you to fall out of love with your Savior, for your relationship to get stale and get sour. I know, not you, all the other Christians, but it happens. It happens. It happens. What do you do when that happens? Do you divorce the Savior when you lose that loving feeling? Of course not. No, you don't divorce the Savior when you lose that loving feeling. 1 Corinthians 7 speaks about divorce in a Christian circle. You know what 1 Corinthians 7 says? Let not the wife depart from her husband. It says, hey wife, you're not supposed to leave that man that God put you with. You're not supposed to leave that man that God married you to. You know what? He's talking about our families, but you know what he's really talking about? He's talking about our relationship to the Savior. Because you, church, are the bride, Jesus is the husband, and the church is not supposed to depart from the Savior. And your marriage is a picture of that truth. It's the greatest picture of that truth, this side of heaven. So when somebody leaves, you're breaking a type that God said, hey, 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 let not the wife depart, because the church is not supposed to leave Jesus, even if you fell out of love. Even if you lost that loving fear, you know, even if the buzz is starting to wane a little bit, you know what you do? You know what you do when that happens? When you sense the love starting to wane like a real marriage and your marriage to Jesus Christ, you know what you do? You put the work in to get the love back. You put the work in to get the, a relationship is an investment. It's a constant process of investing and reinvesting, right? And investment is time and work. Right? Sometimes it starts to get a little cold. I got to put some time and work to get the coals burning again. You know what? And with your Savior, sometimes it gets stale. Sometimes it gets lousy. Sometimes it gets dry as cracker juice when you open the Bible. You know what you need to do? Put some time and work in. Invest because the relationship is important. Right? The relationship is important. And in John chapter 14, verse 15, look what Jesus said. It's like a rocket ship. If you love me, keep my commandments. He's saying, guys, if you really love me and if you really love Jesus Christ, you'll obey the things he told you to do. You say, but I just don't have the right feeling. Excuse me for a second. To hell with your feelings. Right? Do what he said to do. If you do what he said to do, you might start feeling the way you want to feel. But you can't be a slave to your emotions and be chasing them all over the place and just trying to feel something. The feelings come after your faith is built on facts. You got the facts, you put your faith in the facts, and then the feelings start to come. And when they don't come, who cares? You're building on a rock. And if he said, if you love me, well, I just don't feel like I love him. Who cares? Love is an action. It's not a feeling. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. You think God had a feeling towards you when he watched you like a pig in your sin? You think God had a feeling out there? Oh, I just love the world. Oh, I just got a gushy feeling. No, he says, here's, how, here's my love. I'm going to sacrifice for you. 
You know what love is? It's a sacrifice. It's doing it when it doesn't feel good. It's doing it when you don't have the right feeling. It's doing it because it's the right thing to do and you see the bigger picture. He says, if you love me, keep my commandments. Because guys, it's going to get tough. The world's going to hate you. You're going to go through heartache. They're going to put you on the rack. They're going to kill you guys. The world is going to hate you like they hated me. You know what? If you love me, keep my commandments. And if you start doing the things Jesus told you to do, you know what you do? You build your relationship with him. And that's two of you that are excited about that. You know what the problem is? You know what the problem is in churches among God's people? Most of you don't give a flip about your relationship with Christ. You don't care. You don't care about Christ's commandments because you don't really care about your relationship. You're glad you're related to him because getting related to him got you a get out of jail hell free card. But you're not worried about building a relationship with him because you're like, thanks, Jesus. I'll see you on the other side. But he's like, I'd like to walk with you and talk with you and and build a relationship with you because that relationship I build with you is going to go out into eternity. Anybody want to have a relationship, not just be related so look at, go to Luke chapter 6, verse 46. I could see I've alienated about two-thirds of you, so let me, let me just keep going in that direction. Luke 6, 46. Here's a question Jesus asked that is just tough. Man, what a tough question. This is a tough, tough question. Ready? Luke 6, 46. Super tough question. You see it? Amen. Amen. And why call ye me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say? Oh, my goodness, Jesus. I was just trying to get a religious buzz, and you killed it right there. That's a tough question. He's saying, how can I be your Lord if you're not submitted to my words? How much do my children really love me if they don't do what I say, if they don't listen to what I say? Can it really be said they love me? Or they're just using me to give them food and protection and shelter. A relationship is you're listening to what I'm saying. We're communicating and you're listening to what I'm saying. How can you claim to love Jesus Christ if you don't do what he says? He said, oh, because he knows my heart. He does know your heart. He says, your heart is wicked above all things. It's desperately wicked. He says, I search the reins, I try the heart. That's why I'm not trying to go with how you feel today. Because if I measured how you feel today, if I put how you felt today and what you thought today on the jumbotron up here, the room would empty out. Nobody would want to be around you for the next 10 years. If we could put what you think and feel on the screen, and that's how you're judging whether God, you love God? No, the litmus is, keep my commandments. Do what I said to do, in spite of how you feel, in spite of what you think. You know what Elizabeth Elliot said? She lost her husband in Ecuador. They killed him on the mission field in the 50s. He was 29 years old, Jim Elliot. And Elizabeth writes, It is Christ who is to be exalted, not our feelings. We will know him by obedience, not by emotions. Our love will be shown by obedience, not by how good we feel about God at a given moment. And love means following the commandments of God. Do you love me, Jesus asked Peter? Feed my lambs. He was not asking, how do you feel about me? For love is not a feeling. He was asking for action. You say, 
what are you doing with what Jesus Christ says? That lady lost her husband. She's in Ecuador. She's alone. They thought they were there to serve God and turn the world upside down. You think she had some feelings of bitterness? You think she had some feelings of fear and dismay? I know some of you going through deep water. I know you got feelings of fear. I know you got feelings of bitterness. I know you got feelings of frustration. That's okay. Keep the commandments of God. It's action, not attitude. What are you going to do with what God says? What are you doing with what Jesus Christ says? Do your actions say you really love Jesus Christ? Are you willing to sacrifice and do what God says in spite of your feelings? Because sacrifice is the heart of worship. You see? It's easy to love him when the sun is shining and the kids are healthy and the money's flowing. But will you love him and do what God says when the next paycheck is insecure, the kids are sick, and you're not sure what's going on in your world? It's when you can do it there. That's worship. When you walk up the mountain with your son. And he said, we're going to go yonder and worship. Isaac. And he didn't know what was going to happen. He just knew God was going to take care of it. That's the first mention of worship connected to sacrifice when a father didn't know which way God was moving and probably didn't understand what was going on. But he said, I'm going to keep the commandments of God because he's worthy. Do you love Jesus Christ? Look at John 14, verse 23, number three. You know, if you love him, you'll be serious about the scriptures. That doesn't mean you won't laugh and have a joke. I mean, I'm up here last week. I was quoting Bon Jovi. I don't know what I'm doing. You know, half the time. I'm like a free association up here. I'm like Robin Williams met preaching. I'm just like, stuff is swimming around in my head. And I'm just like, I'll hold back half the things I want to say. Because you'd probably leave if I just free associated like my brain wanted to free associate. But you'll be serious about the scriptures. You'll take that book real. See, verse 15 he says, if you love me, keep John 14, 15. He says, if you love me, keep my commandments. That's about obeying. That's about submitting. That's about following. That's action, right? That's action. But look at verse 23 of John 14. Jesus answered and said unto him, if a man love me, he will keep my words. That's not obedience anymore. That's something different. Jesus Christ isn't being redundant. He's saying keeping God's words is about cherishing them, about esteeming them, about commemorating them. It's not about action here. It's now about attitude. It's not about what you do. It's how you approach it. You see, you can't claim to love Jesus Christ if you don't hold his words dear in your life. That's what Jesus said. I didn't say it. That's what Jesus said. If a man love me, he will keep my words. Like you keep a keepsake, like you hold on to something that's precious and you value it and you put it aside and you look at it once in a while to kind of help remind you of the love that you had for that person. Guess what? That book is supposed to be kept close to your heart and you look at it when you should to kind of remind you how Jesus feels about you and how you feel about him. Do you keep his words? You can't claim to love Shakespeare if you don't love Shakespeare's words. You know why? Because that's all you know of him. I know I saw the bust like you've seen him with his receding hairline and that weird collar. And they say, well, that's what Shakespeare looked like. I don't love him. But people don't love him or worship him or like Shakespeare because, oh, wow, look, the Globe Theater and his wooden teeth. That's not why they like Shakespeare. 
Say, wow, to be or not to be. Wow, Merchant of Venice. Wow, Othello. Wow, you know, Hamlet. Wow, you know, all this stuff. They say, wow, look at the words he conceived. Look at the thoughts he conveyed. What an author. What a mind. What a person. And you can't claim to love Jesus Christ if you don't love his words because that's all you've got of him. He didn't walk across your backyard last night. You ate bad pizza. He didn't come to you in a vision. You're having delusions of grandeur. You know how he reveals himself? His name is called the Word of God. That's how you find him. That's how you get him. So how do you love somebody if the only way you access him, you don't care about His words are all we know of him. You understand that first Bible church? All you've got is what he said to you in that book. That's all I know about him. I read about his grace healing a leper. I see his mercy when he calms a storm. Where would I find those things? In a book. I read about him in a book. It's the portrait of your Savior in words. How could you love him and not care about those words? How could you claim to adore him and think nothing of those words? He is the word. When you love someone, you keep that someone's words close to you. Don't you? Don't you? I got a box, like many of you might have a box. And in this box, I got all the cards my children have made me. I hold on to all of them. Why? Because they bless me. They just, they, I just don't know. To me, if they never gave me another gift for the rest of my life, they're taking notes right now. It just, just those cards that they made unsolicited sometimes, my goodness, they've warmed daddy's heart. They are just, oh, I see them in my mind right now. They're so special to me. They're their words. I have notes and letters my wife wrote me. Why do I hold on to them? Because they reveal her heart to me. Those words show me how she cares for me and what she thinks of me. I have an old answering machine that I've saved with messages from my father so I could still hear his voice once in a while. You understand in your lap you have over 788,000 words that show you your Savior, that show you his heart, that let you hear his voice, that reveal his feelings and his care for you. This book that you have is Jesus Christ in words. It's him. You know what Martin Luther said? He said, the Bible is the cradle wherein Christ is laid. It's right there in your lap. There's Jesus Christ in words in your lap in sixth grade English in 75% one-syllable words that all of us could read if we've had probably a fifth or sixth grade education and you don't read it? And you don't study it? And you're not trying to memorize it? Your pages don't have any stains from tears you've wept? Over its promises? And you leave your Bible on the floor and forget it? And you want me to believe you love Jesus Christ? That's a tough sell. That's a tough sell. That's a tough sell. He says in verse 23, If a man love me, he will keep my words, and my Father will love him, and we will come unto him and make our abode with him. You know, folks, if I gave you a book about my son who died in war so you could be free and you treated it like a paperweight, how much time would I want to spend with you? 
He gave you a book about his son who died in an eternal battle that you might be free. And you leave it like a paperweight or an ornament on your coffee table. And you wonder, where's God in my life? Where's God in my life? God says, I want to kind of hang out with the ones that are interested in my son. I want to abide and kind of rub shoulders with the ones who make much of the words that talk about my son who died in war that you might be free. And finally, to which you breathe a sigh of relief. John chapter 14, verse 28. If you love Jesus Christ, this is the hardest one, I'm going to tell you straight up. Hardest one for me anyway. You will surrender to the will of God. If you love Jesus Christ, you will surrender to the will of God. You got to be saved. You got to be submitted. You got to be serious. And then lastly, you got to be surrendered. See John 14, 28? Look what Jesus says here. He says, Ye have heard how I said unto you, I go away and come again unto you. If ye loved me, ye would rejoice, because I said, I go unto the Father, for my Father is greater than I. Jesus is telling his disciples, You guys would rejoice about me leaving if you really loved me. Now, of course, The disciples didn't want him to go. I mean, would you? I wouldn't want him to go. I watched this guy feed the multitude and walk on water and open the eyes of the blind. Hey, whoa, whoa, what do you mean you're leaving? Look at John 16 and verse 5. Just flip the page. Jesus continues to talk to them in the upper room and he says, But now I go my way to him that sent me. And none of you asketh me whither goest thou. But because I have said these things unto you, sorrow hath filled your heart. Yeah, you better believe it, Jesus. Yeah, we're down in the mouth. You're our our captain. You're our everything. And and you're leaving? They're hostile. I saw them try to stone you. I saw them try to take you to a brow of a hill and push you off. And we're supposed to follow in your steps. And you're cutting out of here on us? Yeah. No doubt they were afraid. No doubt they were nervous. No doubt they had fear. But in John 14, what Jesus Christ is telling them, if you look at 14, 28, he's saying... Be happy. Rejoice. Because God's plan is being accomplished in front of you. I'm going back to the Father. I'm going to finish the atonement. I'm advancing the cause. It's working out the way God wanted it to work out. I'm going back to where I'm supposed to be. He's saying, guys, for my Father is greater than I. He's saying that as a man. Don't get crazy. I'm announcing, oh, that is a lesser God. Put that stuff in the trash can where it belongs. He's saying, in this moment, I'm going back. I'm a servant. I'm going back to heaven. I'm taking my seat again because that's the big picture, guys. That's the 10,000 foot view, guys. Take a good look. And perhaps for us, the thought of leaving planet Earth to be with God brings sorrow to your heart, scares you a little bit, makes you nervous, makes you wonder, makes you like, oh, really? Come on. You make you freaking me out. But if you love Jesus Christ, you should rejoice to follow the Savior and see the Father. Because that's the big picture. That's the big picture. That's, that's what this whole thing's about. Not you staying down here forever, but going back to be with him and continue the plan and continue the cause and see this thing play out. It doesn't last forever down here. That's not the plan. That's not the big picture. This is just a little test, a little training ground, a little vapor. Jesus says, I did my test. I did my cause. Now I'm going back home to take my seat at the right hand of the Father. You should rejoice. He says, guys, 
This has just been your little training ground. You're going to follow my steps and be with him one day. Hey, don't be down in the mouth about that. Rejoice. Because the plan is coming to fruition right before your eyes. Right before your eyes. Look at Galatians 1. I'm going to just turn you to a few verses here. Galatians 1 to the right a little bit. Galatians 1. Look at verse 3 and 4. I know it's scary. I know we got teenagers that want to get married. I know we got young people that want to have the things that I had or didn't have. And I know we got older people that are just looking to get out of here before something else breaks. I get it. We got people that are like on all different spectrums. I get it. I get it. I'm sensitive to it. I got three teenagers in my house. I know when I say these things what it comes across as. I understand the fears and the frustrations and the doubts. But you know what we need to do? Step back. Let's just look at the big picture. What is God really up to? What does God really want? What is God really doing? And in Galatians 1 verse 3, the Bible says, Grace be to you and peace from God the Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, hallelujah, that he might deliver us from this present evil world according to the will of God and our Father. The Father's will is to get you out of here so you can be with God. So you could serve God into eternity. He didn't save you so you could just, you know, all right, this is great. Now I could just, you know, uh, go to Chick-fil-A and really appreciate it. Like that's not what he saved you for, right? He didn't save you so you could just have picnics and just bask in the sun that your heavenly father gave you. And I like basking in the sun that my heavenly father gave you. But the whole modus operandi of the gospel was to call you out of darkness into his marvelous light so you could do the work and have the fellowship and the relationship that God wanted you to do. And that includes you getting off this taco stand and spending eternity with him, serving him and his kingdom. And Jesus said... If you love me, you will rejoice because I'm checking out. I'm going to blow this taco stand. I'm about to take my seat at the right hand of the Father. And if you're following him, you got the same future. And you should be willing to follow in his steps. Does the thought of leaving fill you with regret or give you reason to rejoice? How could you love Jesus Christ if you'd rather stay behind than be with him? Right? irrespective of your age, irrespective of what's happened. You know, when Jesus Christ came the first time, there were people planning to get married, studying for jobs, thinking about their future. You know, when Jesus Christ comes the second time, it's not like all your plans are going to be finished. He's going to interrupt them. There's going to be people that are going to be planning to get married, thinking about that first baby, planning for the future, and he's going to interrupt those plans. It shouldn't grieve you. He says, if you love me, you would rejoice because I go unto my Father. For my father is greater than I. What he's got in store is greater than whatever you got cooking down here. Look at Philippians 1. Two verses left. Philippians 1. I could always say, I don't ever say this, but you have nowhere to go. Today you actually have nowhere to go but down the hallway. So I'm going to take a few extra minutes because we went a little long before. But just let me finish this up. I won't go too, too long because I don't want the turkey to get dry. All right. Philippians 1. Verse 23, Paul, the apostle says, I am in a strait betwixt two. I'm in a tough spot. Having a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. Paul says, I'm in a jam because you guys kind of need me. I'm helping you learn the Bible. But on the flip side, I wish God would just call my number and get me out of here. You know, I got stoned in Lystra and he sent me back. I was really upset about that. But I'm just trying to, I, Paul had a death wish after that. 
He just seems like he was trying to get stoned again. <laughs> you know, just, can somebody check me out of here? I'm not saying you got to have a death wish, death wish. I'm not saying you don't enjoy life and soak up every minute God gives you. But Paul's saying, seeing the Lord is far better than anything down here. Being with him is far better than anything cooking you got down here or could conceive down here. Better is a comparative word, right? This player, Jordan, is better than LeBron. I mean, I said it, okay? And I said it from the pulpit, so it has stick, right? This food is better than that food. Oh, that person's stuffing was better. Don't start doing that, okay? But this is better than that. We compare things with the word better. Paul doesn't just say it's better. He says it's far better. He's saying it's way better with him than anything down here. He's like, your only frame of reference is down here. Christmases and family gatherings and births of babies and joy and smiles and good times and sunny days and those things that we think are just the greatest things in the world. He says, take the greatest thing in the world that you've ever experienced down here. Having my wife say, hey, do I do across from me. One of the greatest moments in the world that Danielle Mashanya would ever take an idiot like me to be her lawfully wedded husband. Like those are some amazing moments. God says, pales in comparison. It's far better. It's way, watching my son ring a bell at Sloan Kettering that his treatment was done. Amazing, glorious, hallelujah, praise God. Heaven, far better. Even getting saved and knowing your sins are forgiven, that's exciting. But getting to see him face to face, far better, far better. Say, Lord, I can't picture it. He says, I know, you just got to take my word for it. I'll show you when we get there. You'll see when we get there that it was far better. It blew your mind. You're going to be walking those streets of gold. He's going to roll up next to you and say, told you so. Didn't enter into the heart of man the things which I prepared for them that love me. Amen. Lord, you were right. He said, I know, I know. I don't like to brag. You know. But it's going to blow your mind. Amen. If you take it on faith, man, you just... You should just empty the truck for him, empty the tank for him, get everything you got for him because the more you invest in that, the better it gets. You can make it even better. Paul says, I want to attain to a better resurrection. I'm trying to invest everything down here so when I get up there, ho, I got a crowd waiting for me. I got rewards waiting for me. That'll be far, far better. Charles Dickens wrote The Christmas Carol, but he also wrote a book called The Tale of Two Cities. At the end of this book, this guy is going to his death, a noble death. And he says this famous line that some of you might be able to quote that still know how to read. Most people don't anymore. Sadly, the book is not an emoji. But he says at the end of this book, there's a far, far better thing than I do that I have ever done. It is a far, far better rest than I go to than I have ever known. And people that used to read, they don't read anymore. They just look at, you know, TikTok videos and emojis. But when people used to actually read books that were written to make you think, they read this book and people think about that line. They say, oh, what a line. What a truth. A far, far better thing that I do than I've ever done. And they salivate over a fictional fantasy about a fictional man's death. You have a factual reality about departing. And when you get there, you're going to say, it's a far, far better rest than I go to than I have ever known. And it ain't going to be something Charles Dickens concede to make a lot of words and make some money. That's why the books were so long. It's something that God said was going to happen so you can bank on it. Amen. 2 Timothy chapter 4. Look over there. Like I said, a couple more verses. I'm just about done. 
Some of you had done about half an hour ago, but I'm going to just keep going. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 6. Here's Paul sitting in jail. Can you picture him? He just gave his life for Christ. He's done everything he could to serve God. You know what he ended up with? No retirement package. No house in Florida, you know, to go snowbird in. <laughs> no three cars. No, you know, where do you holiday? I don't know, I, on Christmas? Like, you know, just, he's got a jail cell. Some rats probably nibbling the piece of bread that he threw on the floor because it was too moldy to eat. That's what the great apostle was in this life. The great man of God in this life. The one that we're supposed to model after and pattern after and follow. Lord help us how far removed we are from that. And he says right there in 2 Timothy 4, 6, he says, I am now ready to be offered. And the time of my departure is at hand. He knew he was going to die. Your death is a departure. It's not an end. It's not a destination. It's a departure. When it ends down here, you're going somewhere far better. You understand that? We think this is the end. This ain't the end. It's just the beginning if you're saved. It's a far, far better place that you go to than you've ever gone. He says, the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but unto all them also that love his appearing. He says, guys, there's a crown reserved for you if you just love the fact that I'm coming back for you. Wow. If you love Jesus Christ, you should love seeing him and being with him forever, very soon. I love my wife. I think she's the closest thing to God this side of heaven. Right? You know what I love? I love leaving work and going home to see my beloved. Makes my day every day, right? To just walk in the house and for her to say hello to me. It, it's worth to me gold to do that. Do you love Jesus Christ? Let me hear you say amen. amen. Okay, you're afraid because you think I'm setting you up. But if you love Jesus Christ, you should love leaving the work and going home to see your beloved. I'm busy in the work. There's work to be done. I get it. But my heart's desire is like Paul. It would be far better to leave the work behind and go see my beloved. Amen. And there's a crown for that. Go to John 17, 24. We'll end in John. All right, John 17, 24. What could you love so much down here you'd rather cling to it than be with Christ? What could it be? Your plans, your future, John 17, 24. I'm not saying you got to have a death wish. John 17, 24. This is Jesus Christ, high priestly prayer. These are some of his last words to his father that were recorded on earth. It says in John 17, 24, he prays, Father, I will that they also whom thou hast given me be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory, which thou hast given me before thou lovest me before the foundation of the world. He says, there's a, he's saying, I want them, Father, to be with me. I want you to let them be with me so they could see what I'm all about, see who I really am, partake of the glory that I want to share with them. If that's Jesus Christ's will, how can you claim to love him and not want what he wants? 
Because that's what he wants. He says, I just want to be with you. How? What kind of relationship do you have with Jesus Christ if he wants to see you, but there's nothing in you that wants to see him? Relationship's a little off there. Some things a little knocked off kilter there. You know, Eric Little was a missionary to China around the Second World War. He was born in China in 1902 to a family of Scottish missionaries. He was just six years old when the family returned to Britain to leave him and his brother Robert, two years older, at a boarding school in London. His parents and sister left shortly afterwards to continue their missionary work in China. While at school, Eric showed exceptional sporting talent, becoming captain of the cricket and rugby teams as a teenager. Despite these achievements in competitive sport, Eric was a young man entirely without vanity as the headmaster of the school he attended later described him. As a student at Edinburgh University, Eric combined the study of formal science with rugby and track and field. As a result of his performances, he was selected for the British team for the 1924 Olympic Games in Paris. A few months before the Games, the race schedules were announced. The qualifying heats for the 100 meters, his favorite event, and the one in which he had the best chance of success were scheduled for a Sunday. Eric had never run on a Sunday because of his beliefs. Convinced that running on Sunday didn't bring honor to God, Eric gave up the race that could bring him Olympic gold. His decision stunned many, became a hot topic of discussion in British Parliament, and made waves around the world. They made a movie about it called Chariots of Fire in 1980. Although many were disappointed and gave him no chance of winning, Eric decided to concentrate his efforts on the 200 and 400 meters where his best times were modest by international standards. Before the 400-meter final, a member of the U.S. team approached Liddell and handed him a piece of paper. It was part of a verse 30 of 1 Samuel 2 that says, Those who honor me, I will honor. With that encouragement in mind, he began the race, an amazing race that won him the Olympic gold medal and a world record that stood for 12 years. Quote, I couldn't believe a man could set such a pace and finish, silver medalist Horatio Finch told journalists at the end of the race. A year after that victory and after graduating from college, Eric returned to China to continue his parents' missionary work. He worked with the needy, taught in Chinese schools, organized sports competitions, and worked in a hospital. When asked by journalists if he was sorry to leave his sporting glory behind, he replied that he was happy and acknowledged that his life was more important serving God. In 1941, because of international tensions caused by the Second World War, Eric sent his pregnant wife and two daughters to Canada. Japan was gradually occupying parts of China, and by 1943, foreigners were being sent to internment camps. Eric ended up in one of these camps. When Winston Churchill managed to arrange and exchange himself for Eric's release, Eric refused to leave, insisting that a pregnant woman be sent in his place. In the camp, he had become everyone's friend and a role model for the young. No one had ever heard him say a bad word about anyone. Quote, it's rare indeed when a person has the good fortune to meet a saint, but he came as close to it as anyone I've ever known, said a good friend of his. Just five months before the end of the war, Eric was sent on his deathbed from a brain tumor. Despite the pain and weakness caused by starvation, his last words were full of calm and hope. Quote, it's complete surrender. 
Those were his last words. That best defined his life. It's complete surrender. Do you love Jesus Christ? It's complete surrender. If you love him, you'll want what he wants. And just say, Lord, I surrender. I give up. I wave the white flag. I surrender. Can you go to John 21, just a few pages to the right? I'll end with this illustration. Thank you for your kind attention. Can I ask you one more time, do you love Jesus Christ? Can you, can you just quietly ask yourself that question? Can you just take a moment and examine your love or lack thereof for the Savior based on what he said? You know, in Fiddler on the Roof, that song between Tevia and Golda ends with both of them confessing their love for each other and remarking, you know, it doesn't mean a thing that we love each other. But after 25 years, it's nice to know. Right. They say, it's nice that we still love each other. It's sweet, it's nice, and that's how the song just ends. But when it comes to being a Christian, this question I'm asking you to think about, it's not just nice to know. It's not just, oh, that's cute, oh, that's nice, oh, that's, that's pleasant, that's sweet. Your love for Jesus Christ is the chief subject of the judgment seat of Christ. That's where the bar is going to be set. What did you do? Because you loved me. You say, how do I know that? John 21. You want to see the picture in John 21? Look at verse 4. But when the morning was come, was now come, Jesus stood on the shore. You know what that's a picture of? There's the risen Christ standing on the shore in the morning. That's a picture of the rapture. When Jesus Christ stands, and he just stands there on that resurrection morning to call us home. You know what happens in verse number uh, 7? Therefore that disciple whom Jesus loved saith unto Peter, It is the Lord. Now when Simon Peter heard that, it was the Lord. He girt his fisher's coat unto him, for he was naked, and did cast himself into the sea. You know what that's a picture of? That's a picture of us passing over. The disciples hear the Savior's call and cross the sea to see him. And there's a sea up there, a sea of glass. And one day you're going to cross that water and see your Savior risen high and lifted up. Amen. You know, verse 9 to 13 happens. The disciples get across that sea. And what happens? They dine with the risen Lord. You know what that makes me think of? The marriage supper of the Lamb. Come and dine, he says, the master calleth. And then what happens after they've eaten in verse number 15? So when they had dined, Jesus saith to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me more than these? That to me is a picture of our review at the judgment seat of Christ. When he asked Peter, hey Peter, did you love me more than, did you love me more than, more than all that? Did you love me more than all that? Did you love me more than these? I don't know what the these were. You might have a different these than I have. And you might have a, we might have a different these that they had. But the question in that picture, which looks ahead to the judgment seat of Christ, is not how many tracts you handed out, not how many people you led to Christ, not how much good you did. It's going to be, hey, Pat, do you love me more than everything else? Did you put me first, which is the first and great commandment? Folks, if you don't ask yourself that question now, the Savior is going to ask it of you later. So it would behoove you to ask yourself now, do you love Jesus Christ? 
And if you need to make an adjustment, make an adjustment. If you need to read your Bible more, read your Bible more. If you need to rededicate yourself, rededicate yourself. And if you're not in the family, today would be a good day to get in the family. Amen? Amen? Let's bow our heads for a moment of prayer, shall we?